Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Joe Castellano from thesportsvirus.com. Welcome to the Inside China Basin San Francisco Giants baseball podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, featuring our regular guest, two-time World Series champion, former Giants reliever, George Contos. Gabe Kapler is not Bruce Bochy, so he's going to run things his way. And I'm sure with Farhan, they've had their discussions on what the best course of action is for the ball club. Inside China Basin is brought to you by Keynes Tire in San Rafael, the lowest prices in Marin County for over 60 years. Well, joining us today, a very special guest, a real treat to get a chance to talk to him here on Inside China Basin, a good friend of mine who I've worked a lot with on the NCAA tournament, the voice of not only the Milwaukee Brewers, Major League Baseball on Turner, but also does NBA and college basketball for Turner Sports, doing a lot of things these days. Brian Anderson. Brian, thanks a lot for joining me here to talk about the Brewers and the Giants in this series. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Always good to be with you, Joe. That was a, uh, a really fun game to watch on Monday for game one of the series between two division leaders and Corbin Burns pitched great and he even said that it was a playoff atmosphere uh, I would think everybody kind of gets up for games like this and series like this yeah that that to me uh, I said it on the air but you know that was a that was a proper major league baseball game that that had all kind of playoff vibe to it and urgency and you know these are the greatest baseball players in the world and when they're when they're focused like that and engaged the way they were Monday night, um, the game is at its best. I mean, there was, I, I, first of all, I've never seen so many line drive outs in my life. <laughs> right. There were eight, there were eight line drives in that game that, that left the bat at a hundred miles an hour or more that were out four for each team. And I don't think I've ever seen that before. And now we can measure exit velocity. So, uh, not that I'm an exit velocity hound, but <laughs> that that night was like, this is insane. I've never seen so many hard hit balls go for outs, but uh, it was a really good game. Uh, well pitched, you know, the Giants, um, they just, they ran into a little bit of an issue there with Johnny Cueto and had to use their bullpen. And in most, with most teams, a bullpen game is not, is not a great day, but no. I think the Brewers are very similar. And I think the Giants, because of the talent in their bullpen, they can function that way. You wouldn't want to function that way a whole series, but you can certainly function that way. And it actually, you know, talking to the Brewer hitters, it becomes really difficult to score any runs when, you know, you're rolling out different relievers and Gabe Kapler's getting all the matchups he wants. And, you know, um, so I think, I think that was a, a nice win for the Brewers. And it, it does give you a little bit of a playoff preview for sure. Absolutely. I mean, this pitching staff from Milwaukee has just been unbelievable. And, you know, it starts with Corbin Burns. In this game, he lowers his ERA down to 2.27. He also had an RBI single, so that helps out. But, I mean, it must be uh, so much fun for you to see these pitchers, the way they've developed, and just the, the season that they're having. You have, a, you know, not only Burns, but you have Woodruff, who's pitching on Tuesday, who's also a Cy Young Award candidate. Well, then there's Freddie Peralta, too, who uh, the Giants will not see. He's been on the injured list. He comes back Friday uh, as the Brewers return home to face the Cardinals. And it's really a big three. I mean, Freddie Peralta, he, he kind of gets lost in the shuffle in the Burns-Woodruff conversation. But 
Freddie Peralta is not going to have the innings um, because they've been very protective of his innings coming off last year in a short season. So he's he's not in the National League leaders, but he would be top three ERA. He'd be up there in strikeouts. He's on a pace to set a major league record for opponent's batting average. The guy just doesn't give up hits. And um, so the Brewers feel great about their pitching staff. Um, they, they operate in a six-man rotation. The three guys outside the big three are all really good as well. Eric Lauer and Brett Anderson and Adrian Hauser. Two of those guys are going into the bullpen for the postseason. And then they've got this young kid named Aaron Ashby who has been electric. You know, they, they're kind of they're running him the way they did Burns and Woodruff and Peralta, where they, they'll bring him up, let him pitch out of the bullpen, and then emerge him into a starter's role probably next season. But um, And then you got the guys at the end of the bullpen, Boxberger, Williams, and Hayter. I mean, those guys have been as, as good as anybody in the game. I don't think there is a better combo at the end of a, at the end of a game than Williams and Hayter. So there's never been a pitching staff like this in Milwaukee, ever. Uh, it's just, you know, this is a franchise. When it started in the 1970s, always kind of been known as a, as a hitter's franchise, you remember Harvey's wall bangers, the mm-hmm. world series team in 82. And, you know, it's just been a, it's just been a roster that's been built forever with offense because of the ballpark. American family field is a hitter friendly park. And so, but this is a generally a homegrown built pitching staff um, that is as good as I've ever seen. I mean, I've been here 15 years. It's the best pitching staff I've ever seen. In August, I saw the number that uh, there's a 0.25 ERA for the three pitchers that you were talking about, Boxberger, Williams, and Hayter. So that makes it pretty easy to close out games when you have numbers like that in the month of August anyway. And, you know, Hayter's throwing 99 miles an hour that we saw on Monday. So, I mean, these guys are pretty special. I mean, that, that gives you a great chance in the postseason when you have three pitchers like that coming out of the pen. Yeah, they um, – they they do two things really well. So the, 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 the part of it that gets all the headlines and rightly so is they finish games, you know, the giants, if you just take Monday's game, for example, the giants probably felt really confident about winning that game. They, they are tied for the major league lead and comeback wins the giants um, with 34. And they probably felt good about the opportunity to come back in that game, but the brewers do finish games. Well, they add on well, um, that's why they're able to finish games well. And then the flip side of that, the Brewers are also on that comeback list. They're third, and the Giants and the Brewers can boast the same reasons why, that anytime you have a team that comes back well, uh, there's a straight line to the bullpen, and I mean the B bullpen. So the guys you use when you're down in a game or the game is tied, maybe you're down a couple of runs. You know, So you're not rolling out your A bullpen, in this case, Boxberger, Williams, and Hayter. So the B version of the bullpen has been just as good. And, you know, they've won a lot of games where they've come back late because of it. And they've kept, you know, they've kept deficits standing still. You know, they, a one or two run deficit they've held. And then they've allowed themselves to come back. So if you look at the breadth of a season, teams who do that usually are the teams that, start pursuing the triple digit win totals, you know, like, I mean, 
the Giants, the Braves, the Brewers, the Dodgers. Just look at all the teams that have all the comeback wins, and usually you'll find them atop the standings somewhere. So that's been something that's different. You know, the Brewers really, while they've had some great pieces, they've had some really great closers over the years, but they've never really had the depth and and the B bullpen this talented where they're able to stay in games. That's really, honestly, how you win this many games. I mean, you're not pushing for best record in the game without that secondary bullpen that pitches in the games when you're down being really quality because, you know, you, you can't, you, you don't have leads in all these games. It's just impossible to, to, you know, to have leads all the time. So do you have the ability to come back? And that's usually what tips the scales between a, you know, an 80, 85 win team, if you're a really good team to a 100 win team. And you can look all through the course of history and see the teams that have had the best records that have won a hundred games in that range They've always had that secondary bullpen. Yeah, it's so important. A very complete team and a great manager. I'm really happy for Craig Council, too. I have a little history with him when I was in the minor leagues. Uh, when I was first starting out and I was in Bend, Oregon, the Bend Rockies, the first ever affiliate of the Colorado Rockies, Craig Council was on the team, and he broke his foot on a foul ball. So he came up in the booth with me for about half the season, uh, you know, trying to heal that foot. And I always thought, man, this guy – is going to be a great manager someday if he doesn't make it as a player. Well, of course, he made it for a long career as a player, and he's really doing a great job as the Brewers' manager. Can you speak to uh, you know what he brings to the table uh, for helping out this team this year? Well, he and Gabe Kapler are really good friends, as you know, and uh, they're very close, and I think they have a lot of the same ideas about how the game should operate, and I think both have major influence with their general managers or in in their cases their presidents of baseball operation mm-hmm. um and that's a good thing you know i, I feel like uh, you know craig council was the manager prior to david stearns being hired um and that connection between owner general manager or president in this case and manager is really strong and i think that's really important i think that's how you build consistency that's what gives you currency with players when that group of individuals are tightly connected. So there are no, um, there are no pathways for a disgruntled player to go around. Uh, and so I think once that's kind of understood and that's the, the hierarchy, then I think you can build something special. I mean, I saw that firsthand all my years working for the San Antonio Spurs and how they were built with very tight ownership to GM to coach. Um, and I think they have that in Milwaukee, and Craig Council is a big part of that. I, I believe the owners certainly recognize that. He's the best manager in the game, in my opinion. He hasn't won a Manager of the Year award, which is crazy, but um, you know, he's just he's had some years where some very unusual things have happened. I do think Gabe Kapler should win Manager of the Year, especially if the Giants win the division. Um, Brian Snitker a few years ago was on that list. But Craig Council, to me, is is the best manager in the game. I just I think the way he communicates, he's got the big league pedigree, but he understands, you know, the working man's part of the game. So he's very good with bench players, very good with the part time players, the psychology of the part time players, and he's he's aware of the superstar player. You know, I mean, he understands that challenge too and the burdens they carry. 
and I think that's appreciated. And and where that shows up really is the fact that Christian Yelich was came to the end of a contract and re-signed, did a long-term deal. Uh, the fact that Colton Wong signed a free agent deal with the Brewers, Lorenzo Kane. You know, the Brewers never used to be a franchise that got free agents. They got the you know they got the the C and D level free agents. They never got the A guys, and very rarely got the B guys. Um, but that's changed now, and I think Craig Council is a huge reason why that has changed. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of him. I'm glad to see him doing well. You know, speaking of Kapler, I, I'm really surprised, Brian. I mean, I've been thinking about it all year that the Giants have had these hockey line changes, and, uh, you know, they're, they're bringing pinch hitters in in the middle of the game. Uh, they're doing a lot as far as uh, platooning. And these veteran players have bought into it. There hasn't been a word that has come out about somebody complaining about it. You even you've seen Brandon Crawford, Buster Posey make some changes as far as their style, their hitting style at the plate. And I, I give it all to uh, Kapler and his coaching staff for having those players buy in. Are, are you surprised that a manager could do that with some of those veteran players? I am, and uh, we talked a lot of, to Gabe about that, and um, I think. Two things, you know, one, one, there was really no choice. So if you're, if you're in the 30-something crowd with all the big names and the pedigrees in the World Series, if you're the Posies and Crawfords and Belts of the World and you're kind of surveying the land, you love San Francisco. I'm not, I don't mean to speak for them, but this is my take on it. You love San Francisco. You're the kind of players they put statues out for, certainly <laughs> – hang banners for and retire numbers for Mm -hmm. you don't want to leave that but you're also staring at the abyss of a major rebuild and do you want to be a part of that and you know you look at teams that have even big market teams like the cubs who just traded away all their big stars Mm -hmm. um you don't necessarily want to go through that so your choice is to buy in and believe what they're saying the giants have also been right up against the dodgers system so this is basically what the Giants are doing now with Farhan Zahidi and Gabe Kapler. They're, they're running the Dodgers system, and they have the depth to do it and the matchup system and all of the platoon system that they have, and yet they give the superstars their space. You know, Justin Turner's not a platoon player in L.A., so now Posey becomes a Justin Turner. Brandon Crawford becomes a Justin Turner. And so you have your, you know, your 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 linchpins that are going to play every day and still be the stars, but to function around that, you have this platoon system. So I think all of that kind of works to Gabe's favor and Farhan's favor, but they've done a good job giving those guys a voice and allowing them to have a seat at the table on certain decisions, I think. And, you know, Gabe Kapler, I asked him the other day, what well, what is the most underreported thing about his ball club that's getting all of the headlines and praise he said the fact that our veteran players have been so great there's a lot of talk how good they've been but they've just been great in the clubhouse and with this system and a complete reversal on how things ran in san francisco forever to a great deal of success as well you know i mean the giants were always a team that that were rolling out the same lineup every day and very little pinch hitting and you know just it was that these were their guys. So it's a complete reversal. I think all of that kind of worked in the favor of, of Farhan and, and Gabe when they arrived there. Um, 
And so they took a shot, and it worked. And it's not that one moment that these guys looked at them and said that these players looked at the manager and the general manager and said, wow, this is actually really good. I think they knew it could be good, and it's probably the only way to function right now with the current makeup of the roster, the organization, the lack of minor league talent. You know, there's a lot going against the Giants when the season started, but they've been able to turn it into something, and they're getting career years out of so many players because of it, and I think that's the way the Tampa Bay Rays have functioned, the way the Brewers function, the way the, the Dodgers on the elite level have functioned with very high-priced platoon players. Um, so I think that's just the way, the way it is right now. And so I do give them credit, but I also think it was kind of a perfect storm that this is the only way you're going to be able to fight out of what you've kind of dug yourself into the last few years, since 2016, really. And they made a great move at the trade deadline, in my opinion, to pick up Chris Bryant, uh, another veteran player, and not only because of his offensive skills, but the fact that he plays all these defensive positions. Nowadays in baseball, that is absolutely so valuable. And, of course, you've seen so much of Bryant when the Cubs have played the Brewers so many games. Uh, what were your thoughts when the Giants picked him up? How, how valuable do you think he'll be going forward here down the stretch? And do you think he'll stay with the Giants? Uh, I don't know if he'll stay. That's a great question. I, I don't think, you know, there's going to be any, like, favor for the market, the city. I mean, whoever pays the most or is comparable to paying the most right. is going to get Chris Bryant. So I do feel like he – I think what I've been told and what I'm hearing is that he loves San Francisco. He loves the players there, the culture there, all of that. Uh, so, you know, that's a, you know, that's a bonus because he's not going to go somewhere – where he doesn't want to go, I think the flip side of that would be look at Javi Baez right now in New York. Obviously, that has been a train wreck, and he is, you know, there's no chance Baez stays with the Mets. So I do think the Cubs were very specific with their star players. They wanted to do right by them. They did, I, I, you know, there's not, it wasn't like a no-trade clause. Um, I don't know firsthand, but it just feels like these were the options that were available. Where would you like to go? Because I think there were a ton of teams that had great offers in that from a Cubs perspective would feel similar to what the Giants offered. And so, you know, all things being equal, I think they go back to the player and say, where would you like to play? So again, I don't know that for sure, but just based on the, you know, what they've built in Chicago and the people that I do know there and the way it kind of worked out for Anthony Rizzo to go to New York and, you know, Kimbrell to go to the White Sox where he didn't have to move and leave and change. And, you know, Bryant's a West Coast guy on some level. So I just, I think, I think San Francisco kind of earned Chris Bryant more than, you know, just kind of a, a piece to a trade. So I, I think you, you guys need to give yourself more credit because San Francisco earned that, that spot and that player because I think Chris Bryant wanted to be there. Um, I don't know to the extent of, you know, how much he decided specifically San Francisco, but I would be willing to bet that it was down to two or three teams, and he and he let them know what what he thought was best. That's my only my guess. I don't know that for a fact, but just knowing what was out there for Chris Bryant, of course, there are going to be options, and the Cubs did want to do right by all those great players that helped win them a championship. We'll have more with Brewers play-by-play announcer Brian Anderson right after this. 
When it's time for new tires, you want the lowest prices and the best service, don't you? Well, Kane's Tire in San Rafael has you covered on both. Kane's has the lowest prices in Marin County, and they provide the warm and welcoming service that you can only receive from a family-run business. Voted best of Marin for 35 years in a row, Kane's prices beat Costco's prices every time. Kane's Tire, 1531 4th Street in San Rafael. Give them a call at 415 453 3942. That's 415-453-2942 for Kane's Tire. You mentioned Javi Baez being a train wreck, and uh, this is a story that uh, in New York is a big deal, and really around baseball and the entire sports world. When you have players that are giving thumbs down to the fans uh, because the fans have been booing the performance, and you know we both know, Brian, that in New York or Philadelphia or Boston, it's more intense than it is in Milwaukee or San Francisco as far as booing is concerned, but I don't know that players could ever get away with uh, turning against that with the thumbs down. What was your reaction when you heard about this? Yeah, uh, I was surprised, not at the thumbs down. I think players have a lot of little inside things that they do and hand signals and whatever they do to get through a season. What surprised me was how vocal about it after the game he was when he was asked what it's for. That's something like, I mean, that didn't need to be said. He did not need to say that. That, That's where the firestorm starts. You could have just said that's something that we do for, you know, to help get us motivated or whatever. You You don't have to answer that. That was a direct shot at Mets fans, a direct bullseye. This is why we do it. I want you to know why we do it so you'll feel bad, bad about yourself. And that was an incredible miscalculation on Baez's part. And that's a player who basically, in, in my mind, when something like that happens, says, I got no interest in being with this team. I got no obligation to this team. And that's why he said that. The problem is he's got a lot of teammates that are under contract, that do like playing in New York, that do want to be a part of the team, and now you put them in a really bad spot having to answer for your words, even though you can disconnect easily and move on. Um, I just felt like it's a bad look, it's a bad thing to do, it's a terrible thing to say, and then to add all of that and, and throw your teammates under the bus like that, it's just a, it's, it's just poor it's just poor character is what it is and hopefully it's a mistake and he apologizes for it which he did sort of um and he you know he can move on and never do anything like that again but it's got nothing to do with like Javi Baez versus Mets fans even though it does to him it has everything to do with the ripples that it's going to you know it's going to cause because um you just can't do that i mean these we're in a pandemic these fans are paying money, big money that they could spend elsewhere to support you, to support your occupation. Uh, It's just totally insensitive and uncalled for, in my opinion. All right, speaking of being in a pandemic, to finish up, just wanted to talk about what it's been like for you and other Major League broadcasters to be doing games not on site. Uh, and I know with Turner now you're, you're on site, but with the Brewers you're back home doing the games. And I think it's a, a difficult challenge when you're trying to call games off a monitor. You're not always going to be able to see everything that you want to see when you're at the ballpark. Um, how has that evolved for you? It has been a process. It's been a challenge. You know, I did uh, a full NBA schedule last year from my basement. So we, the technology is incredible. Um, just the, you know, to watch these engineers 
which becomes more of an IT situation than a TV engineer situation. You know, there's you're talking like uplinks, and it, it's a really interesting um, uh, development in TV sports how this has happened. There is some latency, some delay. Um, I would much prefer to do it together with your partner. So in the NBA, I would be in my basement. Reggie Miller or Jim Jackson or Chris Weber would be in a studio somewhere else in LA or in Atlanta. So we didn't have that face-to-face interaction. You can, you can pull it off a lot better if you're sitting next to your partner. So ba- the way baseball works, uh, we parked a truck at, at the ballpark at American Family Field. We do every game from the booth at American Family Field, Homer Road. Obviously the home games and when the team's in front of you and the fans are in the stands, it's a completely different experience. There's, there's great energy. Uh, to do play-by-play well, you need to see it live. Uh, for the road games, especially when the team's on the West Coast like they are in San Francisco, man, it gets pretty lonely. There's no energy. There's no crowd. You're sitting looking out the, at, at an abyss of an empty, dark stadium. Right. Um, so, you know, I've done a few things to try to make it better for myself. You know, selfishly, I've, I bring in a speaker that has – the NAT sounds are what we call the effects. Mm. So that comes into a speaker. So you're hearing ballpark sounds, and I turn that on and kind of crank it up. It kind of fills up the booth. So, and it kind of backfills your microphone as well, um, just as if you were doing a game and there, were, well, there was a crowd there. So there's a little bit of energy with that. You know, I turn it on when I sit down and watch batting practice from the cameras, and I have the sounds behind me. So that helps. And then the other thing, we, we set up a multi-viewer, so a big monitor. It's a 26-inch monitor that has, is broken into a, you know, one, let's see, three, four, five, six different images. And the bigger image is, is um, like the All-9 or the Low Home Robo. So these are all isolated cameras that I can look at. So there's each bullpen. There is... The, a shot of the scoreboard. There is a shot of the all nine, which is a camera up above that shows all of the players, all nine players and the base runners. So those are all isolated cameras that I can look at whatever I want and see what I want, basically. Now, it's not the same, obviously, as doing a game live, but at least I have some sense of time and space, where, where players are positioned defensively, where runners are, uh, if there's a ball in play with multiple runners on, you got to train your eyes to look at a different monitor because that you want to see where the runners are and if they're going to be able to score or not. So that's all taken some getting used to. Uh, I feel like I'm getting used to it and I'm doing better at it. But at the same time, you, you really can't be great calling play-by-play off a monitor you know, when you're subject to the camera shots and, and the director's whim. So you just... You see what you need to see. You just can't be on time or ahead of it. You know, I think, I think, you know, having gone through this exercise, it's amazing that while I may look at a base runner around third and the proximity to a fielder in the outfield scooping up a ball, mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily verbalizing that yet, but I'm, as I'm saying, it's a base hit down the line. I'm already looking at those things live or on the road in, the, in a camera, isolated camera, and thinking about how I'm going to, what's going to happen, like predictive 
commentary, you know, because you've seen it so many times. So I think there is a lot of muscle memory, but it's just not the same, you know, it's just not the same. So, um, I'm fine with it. I love being home every day and seeing my wife and my daughter every night after a game, not having to go on those mountain three city road trips, that, but you know, you, you can't be great at, at the job you're hired to do doing it this way. You mentioned a lot of the technical part there. How much does it help you that early on in your career you actually did technical work? I mean, you were doing camera when you first started out, uh, and it seems to me from being around you with some of the uh, Turner work that we've done together in the NCAA tournament that you've never forgotten that, that uh, you know, it, it is an advantage to have that, and you never forget those people that are doing those jobs that don't get noticed by the fans at home. Well, they're the lifeblood of the industry, and I, I did it, and, you know, I got ignored, and, um, you know, I got put down by a lot of announcers when I was doing it, and that's kind of, you know, one thing I always said to myself, because I, I started as, I was a utility, like a cable puller for the camera guys, then I became a camera operator, then I did graphics and audio, and I did all kind of stuff. I worked at a public access station, and we did all the public access shows. So you kind of had to do it all. You know, you had to learn how to do, set up the cameras and set up the microphones. And so, and I really enjoyed it. There's great art to it. And I don't think those individuals, it's a freelance community for the most part. They don't get enough credit. Uh, they don't get enough recognition. And I just kind of made, you know, made it a point if, because I always wanted to pursue broadcasting and be on air. And I did minor league baseball while I did these technical jobs for years um, in the off season of my minor league baseball gig, I would do all the technical stuff. So I did both. And I just made it a point that if I ever made it to a certain level where I could only do broadcasting for a living and not have to do all these side jobs that, that I would, you know, I would, I would validate a lot of these individuals who don't get a lot of credit. Um, without them, we wouldn't be doing what we do. They're all incredibly talented and, skilled at what they do you can't just roll into some college and you know hire a bunch of uh rtf students or broadcasting <laughs> students and go put them on a big league game and right. and think they could pull it off like this is a very highly skilled labor force that um needs needs some credit for what they do and what they've been able to do all these years the people inside the industry know it but i don't think a lot of fans at home do and i don't think a lot of a lot of announcers do because a lot of announcers never really had to go through that path. So I just, I made a vow to try to change that as best I could and, uh, and appreciate the skill level of these individuals and know that they're just as much a part of this whole broadcast as I am as an announcer and that their work is appreciated and validated, you know, especially when we went through a pandemic and they all got laid off and they don't have salary jobs, they work by the games, they're gig employees. And next thing you know, they're not, you know, they're not making any money. I'd lived through a lockout as a cameraman in the NBA in 99. And mm. that was only three months, you know, and I, I, I wasn't sure where my next meal was coming from. I had a wife, and a baby and no work, you know, so I, I felt for them during that. And I did not appreciate that a lot of, the networks did not value those kind of employees. I was very happy that my network, Turner Sports, did, and they continued to pay those individuals for games they had booked out for, even though they were canceled. 
and of course, you know, made the promises that when we ever get back, we would put you back to work. And that's exactly what they did. And so I'm very proud to be part of Turner Sports for that because I think more than any other, and there were other networks that did that, but I don't think anybody did it to the level that Turner did. And, you know, they took on massive losses financially to make sure they kept their workforce intact. And I'm proud to be a part of a company like that. Yeah, they do an outstanding job uh, technically and as far as the broadcast are concerned and uh, hey you got the national league for the playoffs you could have brewers yeah. giants again in the, in the postseason right no doubt i would love i would love that and um you know i've done the brewers twice in the playoffs before 2008 and 2011 you do put on your national broadcaster hat so it, it i think you know brewers fans always get a little upset when i get excited about a the other team's success but <laughs> it, it really is a different kind of call and um, it's it's been fine, but you know the knowledge of the teams and to be able to walk into a scenario and really know everything about the team that national broadcasters can't know. I mean, I can't know as much about the Giants as Dave Fleming or Kuiper or Kruko or, or John Miller. I just I can't know what they know because they've been breathing it, living it every day. Mm-hmm. But you know, I can know the Brewers better than anybody because I do the same on this side. So. Uh, to be able to bring that to a national audience is is great. And I think, you know, in 2008 and in 2011 when I did the Brewers, um, I think it it helped everybody that I was able to know exactly who everybody was and what the strategies are and, you know, what the little nuances are because it, it, it made for a better broadcast. So I welcome that opportunity. I would love to do that. Even though I get a little backlash from both sides, you know, you're either – you're either a homer for the team you cover, or you're you're a turncoat for uh, getting excited on a on an opponent's home run. You know, it's <laughs> you can't really win the Twitter war, but it does bring a lot of extra value to the broadcast. I think. Well, I'm sure you'll handle it perfectly if it comes to fruition. Brian, thanks a lot for the time. Really appreciate it. Always enjoy all of the work that you do, and uh, good luck in September and going forward into the playoffs. Yes, sir. Always great to be with you, Joe. We'll see you soon. That's Brewers television play-by-play announcer Brian Anderson, who also does play-by-play for Turner Sports on baseball and basketball. Join us again next week. George Contos will be back on Inside China Basin. For now, I'm Joe Castellano from thesportsvirus.com. Thanks for listening on the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.